<laughs> Why don't we open up our Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 13. We're going to read Judges chapter 13 this morning in our Seeing Christ in All of Scripture series. We're working our way through the Bible, and we're in the Old Testament in the book of Judges right now. And this chapter of Scripture here is is a powerful one, and I'm looking forward to covering, Just this will cover the range of uh, Judges chapter 11 through 13 this morning. And so let's look at Judges 13 and read God's Word together. Open up your Bibles and your phones, and uh, let's read God's Word together as a church family. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and Drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome! I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. How kind of God. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Love Manoah's faith there in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? One translation says, Seeing that it is beyond understanding. And another translation, I love this one, that it is too wonderful for you to understand. 
Asa Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Ashtaol. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we study your word this morning and even as we read it, we are so moved by just your personal love for your people that you come, Almighty God, and visit not just nations, but you come to a woman in the field who is barren and you tell her you're going to have a son. And you come to her and her husband when they request you again, God, how kind of you to answer their requests and the heart's desires of your people. You are so good, Jesus. You are so personal in your love and in your care for your people. Lord, as we look at the life of Jephthah and Samson today, I pray that we would be moved greatly by how awesome you are and how good you are, oh, Heavenly Father. And we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross. We thank you for these appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, these these theophanies, these Christophanies, where, Lord, the angel of the Lord approaches and we see... And He is not a mere angel, but God Himself, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity. We praise You and we worship You, Lord, for who You are. And I pray that we would have many wonderful sightings of You, Jesus, as we study Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, I've got four points this morning. The first is a wholehearted devotion to God. Secondly, when sin destroys Thirdly, his appearance was very awesome. And fourthly, the wonderful name of Jesus. And so let's look firstly at wholehearted devotion to God. And in order to uh, set this up, I want to actually begin uh, setting up Judges 13 by looking back at Judges chapter 11 with the judge who preceded uh, Samson, who was named Jephthah. And as we look at Jephthah's life, we'll see in Hebrews chapter 11, they're mentioned In that beautiful scripture in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, in verse 32 of Hebrews 11, the word of God says from the apostle, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, Stop the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. 
before we look at Samson's life. And we'll be getting into Samson's life in more detail um, in the coming weeks. But as we look primarily at Jephthah's life leading up to the birth of Samson in Judges chapter 13, I want to highlight particularly that Jephthah was a judge and a deliverer for the people of Israel out from the Ammonites who were to the east of the people of God across the Jordan River. And God used Jephthah to deliver the people of Israel from the oppression of the Ammonites. And he put those foreign armies to flight as Hebrews 11 talks about. I'd like to, as we move into the first point, wholehearted devotion to God, um, put the first map up so that I can show you just a little bit of the events surrounding Jephthah's life. And these are really flowing out from the first uh, number of verses in in uh, in Judges chapter 11. Uh, Jephthah is actually based here on the other side of the Jordan River, which is flowing down north to south here. And he is used of God, as you'll see, because the Ammonites come and they start attacking Israel. And God uses and raises up Jephthah. He had been living because he had been driven out uh, of this area where he came from up into this town here because the nation did not want him there. And then they ask him back and say, please come and help us against the Ammonites because he was a strong warrior. And Jephthah comes back to help the people of Israel and he gathers them here at Mizpah and they actually end up waging war against the Ammonites and then driving the oppressors away from the people of Israel, and he works a mighty deliverance. And so we're going to look at that in the build-up to Samuel. The, the, The year is 1118 to 1094 B.C., the nation of Israel during the time of the judge Jephthah. And I want to highlight a few details from Jephthah's life from Judges chapter 11. It says in Judges 11.1, if you look in God's Word together with me, church, that Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And that, that town, Tob, is where up in the north where Jephthah had to flee to. He was driven away from his brothers. Verse 4, After a time the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. One of the things just in relation to the backdrop 
of this. And as I look at Jephthah's life, he's a mighty warrior, but he's really, uh, he's really insulted by his brothers and he's driven out by the family and he has to flee and live north in the town of Top, way far away from where the rest of the Gileadites were dwelling. And, uh, they, they, they basically beg him to come back because they know he's a mighty warrior and they need a warrior to lead them in the battle. And uh, one of the things we learn here, brothers and sisters, is some wisdom. As we witness Jephthah conduct himself toward his Israelite brothers who had wronged him. And then we see him also act toward the Ammonites who were coming up against him to fight him. One application for us from this section here on the life of Jephthah is that Jephthah did not fail to serve the cause of God because he was wronged in the past by his Israelite brothers who drove him out of his father's house and sought to shame him. Those brothers looked down upon him because he was the son of a prostitute, and yet when called upon, he answered the call to go to war on all of their behalf. Jephthah very easily could have held a grudge and he, re- he could have refused his services and his sword. But he did not do that. He knew the history of Israel and how God brought them up out of Egypt and had given them this land that they were living in. And so he was on the side of God and his people. He was on the side of God and his people even when God's people disrespected him. just by way of application to us, church, and just discipleship in our own lives as Christians, may we all likewise rise up to serve God even after we have been sinned against or disrespected or let down by God's people. Let us not ever fail to serve God simply because God's people have failed us. It's a principle here. I think that we can derive it an application in our lives. It's very important. Let us not ever fail to serve God because we have suffered unjustly. Life in this fallen world is filled with suffering. And one of the things you learn from Jephthah here is we must protect ourselves from bitterness and resentment and holding grudges against those who have dissed us, or those who have offended us. There are so many professing believers today that if they get offended just even a little bit within the life of their church, they're gone. They're out of there. Church, that should not be. And as we mature as Christians, what we are called to do is be willing to overlook offenses. It's to the glory of a man or woman that they overlook an offense. And I was actually studying in Proverbs 12 the other day in my quiet time. It says that the prudent ignores an insult. The prudent ignores an insult. I was affected by that. I was thinking of Jephthah and his example that he was insulted by their conduct. And then they come to him and they're like, We need you, mighty warrior. We need you now. Come help us. He could have been like, no thanks. I'm up in the north. I'm fine away from the Ammonites. Suffer, brothers. You made me suffer. You cast me out. 
Go find somebody else to help you in the battles that you seek to wage for God. Jephthah didn't do that. And I'm really moved by that example of Jephthah and the way that he conducts himself he conducts himself in relation to his brothers who had offended and insulted him. And he comes and he serves. I love verse 11. Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. I love how he does that. Verse 12 through 17, brothers and sisters, is where Jephthah begins to go and engage the Ammonites, the enemies. And he shows real wisdom and tact when he goes and approaches them. The Ammonites were saying that the Israelites, when they passed through on their way to the promised land, really sinned against them and took their land from them. That's why they were invading the land of Israel. And Jephthah gives them a recounting of the history and says to the leaders of the Ammonites, that's not true. We didn't sin against you. The land that we got was given to us by God, and we passed by your land and didn't sin against you at all. But it actually says in verse 17 that the king of Moab would not consent. And it also says that the leaders of the Ammonites would not listen. Would not listen to Jephthah as he appeals to them to seek to avoid war and avoid bloodshed. Jephthah, again, he shows real diplomacy as a leader in Israel and he doesn't just immediately pick up the sword and go on the attack. He goes and he he reaches out to his enemies and he seeks to appeal to them that that what they're thinking about Israel is wrong, and he wants to avoid bloodshed and avoid conflict. And you you see a real wisdom and, and a grace on his life as a leader as he does that, and they ignore him, and they were provoking conflict. If you look at verse 28, it says, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. And so Jephthah, actually in this next section here, in verse 29 through 40, is a tragic section where Jephthah makes a tragic vow. He's so desirous to overcome his enemies, the Ammonites, that he makes a vow. And uh, it says in verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Manith, 20 cities, as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. And so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. God had raised up this deliverer after the people of Israel had rebelled. He gave them a deliverer to break the oppression of the Ammonites. And God was faithful to his people to break the bondage and break the oppression yet again after his people had been so unfaithful to him. But God raised up this man. God raised him up. And you see his heart. He has a heart for God. If you look at verse 27 in chapter 11, he's appealing to the king of the Ammonites. He says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. And any, this is where his hope is, Jephthah's. And this is a real example to us. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. The Lord, the judge. He calls Yahweh the judge here. And he puts his hope in Yahweh, puts his hope in 
God as judge, as the one who will judge justly before he picks up the sword and goes forward to fight the battle. His eyes are on God, in other words. His eyes aren't on his enemy, they're on God. And and there's something there, church, for us to learn by way of application as well. I think we as God's people can so very often put our eyes on our circumstances, can't we? And we can put our eyes on our enemies and even fear our enemies greatly, but the only place where peace will really come from is when we place our eyes on the Lord, who is the judge. And the judge of all the earth will do right, as Genesis 18 says. And so let us all have our eyes on God as we are living our daily lives. The God of Israel who sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us as sinners. Because it's only by placing our eyes on God in the circumstances that we're facing right now at school and at work and in our homes, the perplexing things that we're going through right now in our lives, church. It's only by placing our eyes on the Lord, the righteous judge, that we can come to a place of peace. It's interesting, this very phrase is picked up in 2 Timothy 4.8 where the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward Award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. He calls the Lord the righteous judge. Paul lets the matter of his life and his future reward rest in the hands of the Lord Jesus, whom he calls here the righteous judge. We know that God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And God sent His own Son to live for and die for His people. And by faith in Jesus, friend, people are forgiven of their sins and they're also justified in God's sight. And when our eyes are upon God, we, like Jephthah, can fight the good fight of the faith knowing that our cause is in His hands and we can be at peace. So I pray peace down upon you, church, as you fix your eyes on the Lord right now with all that you're facing, because He is the righteous judge. And your life and your future and mine is in His good, trustworthy hands. You can trust the hands of your holy God because His hands have been pierced for you. That is an evidence of His love His great love for you. And whenever you're wondering, is God trustworthy? Can I trust Him? Remember that He suffered and bled and died on the cross for you. And having died on the cross for your sins and having been raised from the dead, you can have confidence that He's going to take care of all of your your lesser needs as well, church. So let us have peace as we fix our eyes on God like Jephthah. The second point is wholehearted devotion to God. And the reason I want to point this out is because I don't want to highlight Jephthah's example here as much as his daughter's example. Most theologians and Bible interpreters throughout the history of the church have interpreted this section here with Jephthah's tragic vow when his daughter comes out all excited to greet him when he comes back victorious in battle and Jephthah, you might remember this story. He just says, oh, daughter, you have brought me low. 
She comes out to greet him with tambourines, verse 34 says, and 35 says, and when he saw her, he tore his clothes. Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Most people believe that Jephthah offered up his daughter as a sacrifice, and that she died. That Jephthah's daughter actually died as the burnt offering that he made a vow to make to God. And if that is the case, that is a tragic vow indeed. In fact, it's a vow that should not have been made to the Lord. And having been made, once he saw the circumstances, it was not good for him to keep it. Even though we know from Scripture that it's better not to make a vow before the Lord than to make a vow and then not keep it. Jephthah keeps his word and keeps his vow to God, but... Here, he makes this vow and it affects his daughter's life. This precious little one who comes out rejoicing and so united in the cause of God and rejoicing over her father and his victory over the enemies of Israel that she comes and greets him. She is a remarkable young woman and it's her wholehearted devotion that I want to highlight before all of us now. But she goes in the fields and she grieves after her father tells her about the vow She doesn't fight her father for having made the vow. And she goes and she grieves on the mountains. If you look at verse 37, she says, Leave me alone for two months and I might go up and down in the mountains and weep for my virginity and I and my companions. And and so he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. The daughters of Israel, for many years to come, remembered Jephthah's daughter's sacrifice and her devotion to the Lord. And they wept over her. And Jephthah's daughter, she does not fight against this. She comes underneath of this vow and trusts herself to God and If it is in fact the case that Jephthah actually did kill her and offer her up as a burnt offering, the reason I say that is because there are some theologians like Matthew Henry and others who believe that Jephthah actually didn't kill his daughter, but instead he dedicated her to complete service to the Lord, like in the case where Hannah dedicates Samuel when she gives birth to him and just gives Samuel over to the temple of the Lord and the service of the Lord. And Samuel's life became completely consecrated to serve God. Some interpreters believe that that's what happened here when when, uh, Jephthah made his vow for his daughter, that she actually did not, in fact, die, but was actually, what she was weeping for here was actually her virginity. She wasn't going to marry, and she was grieving the loss of a life that she might have had with a future husband and family, and that, that because she was weeping over that and not the fact that she was going to die, gives evidence that she didn't die when the vow was made, but that actually she became really dedicated to the Lord and service lifelong. And so she lived out her life. But that would be a minority view. Either way, if she in fact died, she's an example to all of us of sacrificial devotion and wholehearted commitment to the Lord, to the God of Israel, entrusting herself to the Lord, and putting her life in His hands. She's also an example, even if she had lived all of her life long, 
She stood by the vow that her father had made and lived a life where she never had a family of her own or a husband of her own. And she did that and lived in wholehearted consecration to the Lord. She is a remarkable young woman and she's an example to every one of us. And it's a reminder and it teaches us, brothers and sisters, a number of things. That it's okay to lament over the pains of the sacrifices that following Christ can cost us. And there's definitely a cost to following Jesus. We feel the pain. But we also see that she is an example of wholehearted obedience and commitment to the Lord. And being so united to the cause of God and the advancement of His kingdom through the people of Israel conquering over the Ammonites that she aligned herself with the cause to the point of this great sacrifice that she made. And so let us remember Jephthah's daughter for the commitment and sacrifices she made and let us, like the daughters of Israel, remember her and be affected by her example. May we all embrace the cost of following Jesus because it is going to be hard to follow Christ throughout our lives as disciples of Jesus. It's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows as we follow Christ. There will be cost. There will be pain. And we need to be willing not to be just fair-weather Christians, but Christians who will follow the Lord in the storm and times of great loss, even as our dear sister Becky is facing right now. I wish you could have been there as she was pouring out her heart to God in worship and lament last evening, she was offering up faith with a broken heart, crying out to God in the midst of her immediate loss. And Becky, for years, had been a faithful servant within our church as a member here. And I want to honor her as one of God's precious chosen ones a daughter of the Lord who wept and grieved in a manner worthy of the Gospel. And we need to pray for her in the days and months and years ahead as she continues to mourn the loss of her husband that she lost only yesterday. And ask that God would just be with her to strengthen her for the wholehearted commitment of continuing to follow Christ by faith even when we go through the darkest nights of our souls. The church, may God give all of us grace to do so as well. I want to turn our attention now to the second point, which is when sin destroys, and move into verse uh, chapter 12. What takes place after Jephthah's conflict with the Ammonites and the victory? If you could put the map back up again. It's crazy in verse 12 that um, what takes place is, so he fights against the Gentile enemies, but then after they do a great service to all of Israel by delivering them out from the oppression, the Ephraimites over on the other side of the Jordan River, which flows here, became offended at Jephthah for not including them in on the battle. And most likely, they didn't get any of the spoils of the battle as well. And they take great offense to Jephthah, and they threaten to burn his house down. Not a smart move. For a guy who's coming off of the battlefield, having just delivered the whole nation of Israel from the oppression. It's so sad here because one of the details related to, you see Ephraim here, 
and then Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan River. These were Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that Jacob prayed blessing over in Genesis chapter 48. And here we have now, it's not the Israelites and the people of God conquering the enemy Gentiles who are uncircumcised and unbelieving and are against the Lord. What's so sad and what transpires is now brothers fighting against brothers in the promised land. And it's a description, brothers and sisters, of how sin can be so destructive that it leads to us, not all of us collectively as one, going out and fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil in union together and conquering for the gospel as one. One of the things that's so sad in the book of Judges is the breakdown, and we'll see this happen more as we go deeper into the book, between brother Israelite and brother Israelite. And so you see Ephraim here in the purple. They come over and they attack. They attack Jephthah and the Gileadites. And they lose that battle. And they come down here to the town of Adam, which is right on the ford of the Jordan River. And that is where Jephthah and the Gileadites actually... It's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating passage of Scripture, but it's the Ephraimites are actually trying to get back across. They're fleeing from battle, trying to get across safe to the other side after they lost. And because Jephthah seized the fords of the Jordan, they had a little test where they said to say the word Shibboleth. And the uh, Ephraimites couldn't pronounce Sh. And so they said Sibboleth instead. And any, everybody who said Sibboleth, they knew was an Ephraimite, and they put them to death. And there were 42,000 brothers in Israel that were put to death. This is a description of what the last chapter in the book of Judges talk about. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it shows the destructive power of sin there in Judges chapter 12. And I'll let you read that story. We don't have time to get into it in detail. But we see Jephthah once again being a mighty warrior and the troubles for him didn't just exist with the Ammonites, but also with his brothers in Israel. And he had to overcome that and remain faithful. So Jephthah judged Israel six years, it says in Judges 12, verse 7. And then there were three other judges that God raised up. They don't get a whole lot of ink in Judges chapter 12. There's not significant battle stories with the judges Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. But I think this is a reminder to us and a call to all of us, brothers and sisters, to be faithful in times of great drama to the Lord, but also faithful in Israel when there's quiet and peaceful times. In all times and seasons, may God find us as His people faithful in the times and seasons of all the different leaders and the seasons in Israel. One of the wonderful stories of one of those judges is he comes from the town of Bethlehem. O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. We know of another leader who comes from Bethlehem as well. And his name is Jesus Christ, the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. And so that's a sweet detail in Judges chapter 12. And then we find ourselves here in Judges chapter 13 with the birth of Samson. And so I want to move there to our third point, that his appearance was very awesome. His appearance was very awesome. 
and brothers and sisters, as we look at this point, it's pretty amazing that the Lord sent His angel, the angel of the Lord, to a man in the tribe of Dan named Manoah, and to his wife who was barren, even after his people once again did what was evil in his sight. He delivered them from the Ammonites through Jephthah, and they went and rebelled again, the word says. And God gave them this time into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson ends up getting raised up closer over to where Jerusalem's at. So it's a different location now, and a little bit of a later time in the history of Israel. But this just chronicles Samson's birth. We're going to get into his life in the coming weeks, but this story of his birth is just awesome because of the angel of the Lord coming and announcing to his parents that they're going to have a son. Remember, they were barren. And again and again, God, throughout the Old Testament, comes and visits barren women and gives them child. And through the helplessness and the powerlessness of these men and women, God raises up the arm of His strength and brings forth the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who comes and conquers and crushes the head of the serpent. The history of Israel and our history as well is not a history of our power and our might. We are barren. We are helpless. We are powerless. But God is the Almighty. And let us always remember that. Let us take it to heart. And let us be encouraged today as we look at our own lives and our own futures. It's not by power or by might, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Let us have our eyes on the Lord and keep our eyes on Him and never take our eyes off of Him because He is the God who causes the barren woman to give birth to a mighty deliverer named Samson. And so we saw as I was reading that passage, Manoah trusted in the word that the angel of the Lord spoke to his wife, which showed real faith. And he wanted instructions on how to raise the boy, which showed real wisdom. And so he sought God for wisdom on how to raise the son. May each one of us as fathers and as mothers as well cry out to God for wisdom, wisdom on how to raise our boys and our girls. They show us a real example here in their parenting. They are dependent upon God for His wisdom. And the angel of the Lord reminded Manoah to help his wife, firstly, to be careful to obey the word of the Lord that he had proclaimed to her the other day. This here reminds us that not only must we marvel at experiencing Christ, even as Manoah's wife said, oh, he was very awesome. They experienced the angel of the Lord and said he's very awesome. But not only must we say God is awesome, Jesus is awesome, we must also obey the word of Jesus and follow Jesus as his disciples. Manoah's wife, when she described the angel of the Lord's appearance to her husband, said in verse 6, and I just want to highlight this, a man of God came to me, she said in 13 verse 6. Look at it again with me. I love this. And his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. Right there, those two words. My brothers and sisters in Christ, that will be your eternal future when you get to see Jesus face to face and you cross over the River Jordan yourself and enter into the presence of Christ. You will get to say His appearance is very awesome as well. And so we have 
an eternal future of enjoying Christ together. And I want you to be encouraged about that and look forward to that. And she said, I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. I love later on as the, as the text and the narrative continues on that he's described as the one who does wonders. God is the one who works wonders and he does awesome things and he appears very awesome, but he also works wonders, Manoah and his wife said. Let that be one of those. You want to memorize a verse in Judges? Pick 13 verse 6. His appearance. Speaking of the angel of the Lord, speaking of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state, was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I love that, don't you? I love it, and I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. Let's get excited about this church, that we're going to see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ face to face. We are going to look into the face of the one who was struck in the face for us. And it's going to melt our hearts as we look into His eyes of blazing fire that are filled with love for us, His people. Christ died on the cross and suffered hellish torments, understanding what it's like to be forsaken by God in order to be our sin-bearer. How great is His love for us? How great is His love for His people? That He doesn't send just some mere messenger, but God Himself comes and visits this woman. I see the personal love of God in this passage and see His wonderful dealings with us as His children here. Take great comfort in that and be encouraged. And the fourth and final point that I want to hit today is the wonderful name of Jesus. When the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar when they offered up the offering to him, Manoah and his wife, after meeting face to face with Manoah and his wife, the angel of the Lord went up and they fell with their faces to the ground. Let us have a reverence and an awe for the Lord Jesus because He is very awesome and worthy of our excitement and our enthusiasm. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, is also worthy of reverence and awe, for He is a consuming fire, as Hebrews describes Him. Let us bow down and let our faces hit the ground regularly in humility and in worship, because they said in reflection, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. In the book of Revelation, when the Apostle John sees Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, in the great vision of the book of Revelation, it's not this like buddy-buddy, pal-pal interaction, even though there was a great intimacy with John the Apostle and Jesus while Jesus dwelled on the earth during His first advent. When He was risen from the dead and He ascended to His Father's right hand, when John the Apostle sees the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead. Our Savior is holy, brothers and sisters, and we must walk holy before Him in worship. We must worship Him in reverence and in awe. And they identified, Manoah and his wife did, they identified the angel of the Lord as God Himself. Take note of that. 
and they were right to do so. This was no mere angel, but the angel of the Lord, God Himself in their midst. This is a seeing Christ in all of Scripture moment for us. And I love Manoah when he asked the angel of the Lord his name. He replied and said in verse 18, Why do you ask my name, the angel of the Lord said, seeing it is wonderful. Seeing that it is too wonderful for you to understand. And I couldn't help but think of Isaiah. His name shall be Wonderful. Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace. His name is wonderful. That means it is beyond understanding, beyond comprehension. Brothers and sisters, when we read passages of Scripture like this, that that the pre-incarnate Christ is not even able to give His name to Manoah and his wife because it is so beautiful and so glorious, it's so wonderful that even if He said it, they wouldn't be able to understand it or comprehend it. Those are those moments where you just want to kind of pause up in your quiet times as you're looking at Judges 13, 18. You want to say, Lord, I want to memorize this verse and memorize it. You want to let it meditate and sink deep down in your heart. And then you just want to worship the incomprehensibility of God. The doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God is that God can be comprehended because He's revealed Himself in His Word. God can be comprehended, but He can never be fully comprehended because He's God. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are His thoughts above our thoughts. Brothers and sisters, throughout all of eternity, when we are worshiping God and we are in His presence, we will never be able to get to the bottom of how glorious and how awesome our incomprehensible and awesome and wonderful God is. We will be studying Him as an object of our worship and our devotion and our passion. And we will see His nail-scarred hands and His nail-scarred feet and His pierced side for us. And we will know that He loves us. But mark you, church, we will never be able to get to the very bottom of His love for us, even throughout all of eternity, studying it. Because His love and His person and His being are too wonderful for us to comprehend in all of its fullness. He is holy. We are finite. He is eternal. We are not. He is the Creator. We are the creature. And let this verse, as we look at the wonderful name of Jesus, Let us be humble. Let us see, as one translation says of this, that His name is secret. It's too wonderful for comprehension. It's like nothing we've ever seen or heard like we sing. The name of Jesus is so wonderful indeed. And I couldn't couldn't help but think of the song that we sing. The wonderful name of Jesus. The fact that He was with His people all the way through the wilderness and with them here in the raising up of the judges and all the way until the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and is with us and will be with us forever. Isn't that just wonderful, church? Isn't it beyond our comprehension, our full comprehension? We can comprehend it, but we cannot fully comprehend 
the heights and the depths of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. This was so great that Manoah thought, we're done, we're going to die. But his wife was a good helpmate to her husband and said to him in verse 23, if you look with me there, she says these help words to her husband. If the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. Or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Matthew Henry writes of her here, In Manoah's reflections, there is great fear. We shall surely die. And in his wife's reflection, there is great faith. As a help meet for him and wives, let this inspire you as your helpers to your husbands. As a help meet for him, she encouraged him. Let believers who have had communion with God in the Word and prayer, to whom He has graciously manifested Himself, and who have had reason to think that God has accepted their works, take encouragement. God would not have done what He has done for my soul if He had designed to forsake me and leave me to perish at last, for His work is perfect and Learn to reason as Manoah's wife did. If God designed for me to perish under His wrath, He would not have given me tokens of His favor and His love. Brothers and sisters, it is true indeed that we should have to die when we see our Lord Jesus face to face. And yet we as believers will not die when we see our Lord and stand before Him on the day of judgment, but we shall live. And why shall we live? Because this wonderful Jesus, whose name is too beautiful and too wonderful for us to comprehend, beyond us tracing out this Jesus Christ died on the cross and became our sin bearer. He was cut off and forsaken so that we who believe in Him might not perish, might not die as Manoah had feared. But like Manoah's wife said, instead, we will be able to live before Him. We will be able to see Him face to face and worship Him because He has accepted God the Father has the sacrifice of His Son Jesus on our behalf. God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, His Son, on our behalf. And you know what the proof of that is? He raised Him from the dead. And so if you're ever in doubt of God's love, if you are ever in doubt that you'll be able to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, take heart. Your sins have been forgiven you. And you are no longer in your sins. Christ has been raised from the dead. For the glory of the Father. And that resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God the Father's exclamation point. You are forgiven. You are justified. I have accepted my son's offering on your behalf. And now, look forward to seeing my very awesome son face to face someday very soon. Isn't he awesome, church? Alex, if you and the band could come back, let us worship and sing that final song that we sung in worship that Alex led us so well and into. And let us marvel at the beautiful and wonderful and incomprehensible name of Jesus, His being, who He is, and what He's done on our behalf. I'd ask CB if I could just read through uh, Corinthians 15.
15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to uh, Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. And this is uh, this is pretty awesome. Now, if Christ is proclaimed uh, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But there is. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man who has, all, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I'm going to skip ahead, uh, mostly because of my lack of full understanding of that next passage. Um, because this is, this is where it just blows you away. Um, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come, come to pass the saying that is written, 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, I think, where we should all be sent off in hope and encouraged. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Is he not glorious? Let us thank the Lord Jesus for all that he's done for us. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for your victory over the grave. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, if there's anybody who has not repented of their sins here in this room and believed in you, I pray they would do so at this time. But Lord, for all of us, your people, thank you for dying on the cross for us. And thank you... Almighty Father, for raising your Son up from the dead and giving us the hope of eternal life. We shall not perish, but we shall be with you forever because you, Lord, you are alive. And we look forward to seeing you, awesome God, face to face. Amen? Amen. Well, church, we have uh, a meeting immediately now after church related to the um, uh, five-day club with Lewis and Esther. So if you could get your children very quickly. And for those who are going to participate in that meeting, please meet immediately back in the LGI room for that meeting. Guests, thanks for coming. Everybody else, have a wonderful week and enjoy this beautiful day. God bless you.